There are certain places that emerge as profound markers in history, anchoring the narratives of generations past and of those yet to come. These places are more than just geographical coordinates on a map. They're repositories of memory, vessels of experience, and a type of conduit for the stories of humanity. Today's profound marker in history lies in the heart of New York City. The Bowery is not just a well-known thoroughfare. It's a living tome that holds the heartbreak and hope of countless souls. From ancient ruins to bustling city streets, from serene landscapes to battlegrounds of conflict, places like the Bowery beckon us to explore the past. And when we do, we gain a lot. We preserve our collective memory, respect identities and cultures, avoid past mistakes, appreciate how far we've come, and realize that bygone eras rarely stay in the past. I'm Kate Naglieri. Welcome to the Bygone Society Show. Phineas Taylor Barnum, better known as P.T. Barnum, is one of the Bowery's more famous and controversial figures who arrived on scene in 1841, leaving his entrepreneurial and curious mark on the city. In the musical box office hit The Greatest Showman, actor Hugh Jackman portrays P.T. Barnum as a gregarious and well-intentioned showman who fosters an accepting and spectacular community for people with physical disabilities, as well as performers with unique skills. But there's a darker side to the father of show business. Barnum's real motivation for entering the industry was strictly selfish. He wanted to be rich and famous and believed that if he found something or someone that captured the attention of the masses, he'd make it. Sadly, that day came when Barnum purchased an elderly, enslaved African-American woman named Joyce Heth. Around 1835, Barnum bought Heth and her alleged backstory from R.W. Lindsay for $1,000, which is the equivalent of about $35,000 today. Heth was blind and nearly paralyzed. And even though she was a full-blown sentient being, it didn't stop Barnum from exploiting her to reap a profit. According to Barnum's newly bought narrative, Joyce Heth was born in Africa in 1674 and was enslaved in the United States. She supposedly nursed a young George Washington when he was an infant, which would have made her over a century old at the time. Barnum claimed that she had retained her faculties and memory remarkably well, despite her age of 161 years old. He marketed Heth as a living link to American history, a direct connection to the nation's founding, and charged admission for people to come and see her, 
hear her stories, and marvel at her advanced age. Heth did this every day, 10 hours a day, for seven months straight, before she passed away in February of 1836. Ever the opportunist, Barnum even viewed Heth's death as another means for money bags. On February 25, 1836, 1,500 people each paid 50 cents to witness Dr. David Rogers dissect Joyce Heth's body. During the public medical examination, Dr. Rogers determined that the elderly woman was no more than 80 years old. This was Barnum's first of many humbugs, a term the press and public started using to describe a kind of trickery or deception meant to deceive or confuse others, much like how the term misinformation is used today. The 19th century was marked by a fascination with sensationalism and entertainment. People were drawn to displays that were dramatic, shocking, and different from their everyday experiences, and Barnum had only just started to capitalize on the public's interest in and exploit the people involved with what were then called freak shows. To set the stage for his sideshow attractions, Barnum bought the American Museum in 1841, which was located at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street in the Bowery. The purchase included the building itself, its contents, and the rights to the name and brand. Barnum saw potential in the museum's central location in New York City and its history as an entertainment venue. Little did he know how much it would dictate 19th century urban culture. Barnum's exploits were made possible thanks to the changing tides in social, economic, and political beliefs during this time, including a burgeoning middle class, mixing low and highbrow entertainment that towed the line between educational and villainous. Within the marble walls of the museum, Barnum exhibited such attractions as the Fiji mermaid, a peculiar and fantastical creature that was half human and half fish. Then there was Barnum's biggest small star, General Tom Thumb, whose actual name was Charles Stratton. He stood only 25 inches tall due to a type of dwarfism and proved to be Barnum's most profitable sideshow. Stratton's performances included a variety of acts such as singing, dancing, and impersonating historical figures like Cupid and Napoleon Bonaparte. He often appeared in elaborate costumes and was known for his wit and charm on stage. Under Barnum's management, Stratton completed multiple world tours, traveling to Europe, Asia, and other continents. He performed for royalty, celebrities, and audiences of all kinds, including American President Abraham Lincoln and England's Queen Victoria. To further capitalize on his world-renowned popularity, Barnum even orchestrated Stratton's marriage to another little person, Lavinia Warren. His other exploitative exhibitions featured the following individuals. William Henry Johnson, known as Zip the Pinhead, a man born with microcephaly, who was referred to as a pinhead due to the shape of his tapered head. Annie Jones, also known as the Bearded Lady, a Virginian woman who was likely born with hirsutism. She worked hard to eradicate the term freaks from the entertainment business. 
conjoined twins Chang and Ang Bunker, who were from Siam, now modern-day Thailand, Captain Constantinus, the tattooed man, who claimed to be a prince from a distant land and was covered in intricate tattoos, sparking interest in the art of tattooing among New York City residents. And Isaac Sprague, called the human skeleton, a man who had a rare medical condition that caused his skin to be nearly transparent. At the expense of these individuals, the American Museum amused and educated its audiences. Throughout its 23 years of existence, it played a big role in the growing public life of that period and shed light on the country's path towards civil war. It brought together various groups of people, including immigrants and native-born, people from different social classes, men and women, and both city residents and visitors from rural areas. However, despite this diversity, the museum faced challenges due to the social tensions caused by differences in gender, ethnicity, class, and race. As for Barnum, his ownership of the American Museum marked the beginning of his career as a showman and promoter. That was until a devastating fire destroyed the building on July 13, 1865, causing the loss of many exhibits, artifacts, and attractions. Fortunately, no lives were lost in the fire. For better or worse, Barnum chose not to rebuild the museum, shifting his focus to creating his traveling circus and leaving the Bowery ripe for a new kind of path, one that would bring New York City into a new century. The elevated train line, affectionately known as the L, ran straight through the Bowery in the 20th century. This futuristic mode of transportation was an integral part of the city's infrastructure and was a direct response to a population that had doubled in size since the Civil War. Constructed in the late 1800s, it connected various neighborhoods and provided New Yorkers with a convenient way to traverse the bustling city. The L train system, especially the Bowery L, played a pivotal role in shaping transportation in urban environments and hastened the fall of the once reputable and affluent neighborhood into an unsavory den of grit and vice. As the L snaked its way through the angled streets, it offered passengers a unique vantage point to observe the vibrant street life below. The view from the train cars showcased a diverse mix of theaters, shops, saloons, and tenement buildings, providing a window into the daily rhythm of the neighborhood. Ever the innovative marketers, brothels were strategically positioned on the second floor of nearby buildings that butted dangerously close to the elevated tracks, allowing commuters to catch a glimpse of the working women in the windows. Sentiment toward the Bowery L train during this period was a mixed bag. Many applauded the convenience and accessibility that it brought to the neighborhood. The train provided a quick and efficient mode of transportation, allowing residents to easily travel between different parts of the city. On the flip side, the train brought noise and disruption. 
The clatter and the rumble of the trains passing overhead were often heard throughout the neighborhood, which, as many current New Yorkers who live near today's train lines can attest to, is rather intrusive. The elevated structure was also considered to be an eyesore. The imposing presence of the train lines sometimes clashed with the evolving urban aesthetics of the city and drove away much of the upper and middle classes that had previously settled there. In fact, before many highbrow residents fled the neighborhood for new pastures, many complained about the oil and grime dripping from the elevated tracks onto their clothing. Below the rattling and oil dripping tracks, gang members, prostitutes, and addicts would pass by dime museums, tattoo parlors, and brothels, but never a church. That's because the Bowery is the only major thoroughfare in New York City to never have a church built on its unholy streets. But where others saw filth, John McGurk saw gold. In the old red light district, McGurk set his sights on acquiring a brick tenement building, which previously served as a hotel for returning Civil War soldiers. He bought it and named it McGurk Saloon. But history had a different name in mind. She named it Suicide Hall. McGurk Saloon was not just a place to imbibe, it was considered an architectural masterpiece that reflected the era it emerged from. The exterior exuded a rustic charm with its old brick facade and weathered wooden signs. Inside, the saloon featured an ornate tin ceiling, vintage mahogany bar, and antique gas lamps. There were separate entrances for men and women, with the men's leading straight to the bar, and the women's leading down a long corridor that eventually found its way to the bar too. The saloon began attracting a more desperate kind of crowd, including people struggling with poverty, addiction, and mental health conditions. The decline of the neighborhood's overall reputation and the resulting change in patronage led to a significant shift in the saloon's atmosphere. To keep the rough and rowdy clientele in check, McGurk hired a slew of seedy characters to serve as bouncers, but it did little to temper the sinister goings-on. Eventually, McGurk's own staff started making dark dealings of their own. Bartenders were known for slipping embalming fluid in drinks for an added effect. Waiters employed Mickey Finns, which was a drink laced with chloral hydrate to incapacitate their patrons and subsequently rob them for all they're worth. In addition to their newfound side hustle, McGurk allowed prostitutes to frequent the establishment and engage in business. This made the saloon a target for many police raids. During one such raid, the New York Times reported, They charge McGurk with admitting minors to a concert saloon where intoxicating liquors are sold. When they visited the place, the agents found it overrun with men and women of the lowest type. Everything was carried out in a disgusting manner. It's said that thousands of women and young girls were so impoverished, selling yourself was the only opportunity available to them. Working the charmless streets and pallid bars took its toll on these young souls, many of whom were between the ages of 16 and 18 years old. Broken and beaten by life and other people, 
Many of these women felt their only way out was taking their own life. And McGurk's became the place to do it. There were two methods of suicide. The first was to drink carbolic acid, a sweet yet deadly liquid used by the Nazis in concentration camps for their selection program. According to Memorial and Museum Auschwitz-Birkenau, quote, SS physicians found that the most efficient killing method was injecting phenol into the prisoners' hearts, unquote. Needless to say, injecting or drinking carbolic acid is a most slow and painful death. Those looking for a quicker and easier way out would simply climb to the top of the five-story building and fall to the unforgiving street below. To allay the fear of death, others sought companionship in their fatal attempts. According to an article published on October 10, 1899, in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Madge Davenport, known as The Blonde, and Mammy White, known as Big Mammy, drank carbolic acid together in the dance hall of McGurk's because, quote, they were tired of life and after having quarreled with their lovers, unquote. Like P.T. Barnum, McGurk profited from the multiple suicides and suicide attempts at his seedy establishment. By the end of 1899, 10 women attempted suicide and six more girls, mostly teenagers, succeeded, spawning a type of morbid tourism. It's said that postcards donning the names of the deceased women were popular souvenirs and are still discovered around the world today. The Bowery and all those who lived there stand as an indelible testament to the ebb and flow of urban evolution. From its humble origins, the Bowery metamorphosed into a boulevard of commerce, industry, and personal strife, reflecting the city's tumultuous progress. The Bowery is a paradox of highs and lows, where progress and grand theaters coexisted and coexist with squalor and adversity leaving a lasting mark etched into the soul of the city and its people. Thanks for listening to the Bygone Society show where we chronicle the strange and unusual corners of history. Have a story idea? Email the society at bygonesocietyshow at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed listening so far and think I deserve it as your host, 
follow The Society, and leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts by scrolling down your show page, selecting a star rating, and tapping write a review. If you're already a mega member and fan, consider sharing your favorite episode with friends and family who also enjoy taking a walk down history's eerie lane. None of this would be possible without your support, and I'm grateful to know my kind of weird matches your own. From your gracious and ghoulish host, thanks for listening.